0: Um, I believe this is week four of our summer of prayer. Who's praying more because of the series? Anybody? Okay. A few people. All right. I would love to see more people praying more. Let's try that again. Like, is anybody? Can we try? Who's praying more because of the series? Okay. There's a few more hands. That's great. Still some of you know your hands are not up. Can we try it again? No, I'm kidding. But like, I want you praying more. That's the whole point of this thing. Now, today, as we continue the series, I'm going to teach you about a new type of prayer. And uh, for many of us, it's probably our weakness when it comes to types of prayer. I wanna teach you about intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer, that's your $5 theological word of the day, everybody say, intercessory prayer. Very good. Now, we're gonna spend most of our time today explaining theologically, really biblically, what intercessory prayer is. Lots of Bible today for the Bible nerds and note takers in the room, prepare yourself. But before I explain to you what intercessory prayer is, I wanna start, by stating clearly what it isn't because it helps you kind of to figure out what's at the heart of this thing okay what intercessory prayer isn't is it isn't uh, devotional prayer it isn't really like your quiet time if you will i got my prayer journal i got my bible i'm sitting by a window it's morning, the sun's rising, I'm sipping my cup of coffee, and a bumblebee just landed on a flower. Spirit, lead me where my trust. Like that that stuff, you know, like that's, it's good, it's great, not intercessory prayer. Hope you have moments like that, okay? Not inter- intercessory prayer. There's basically two big categories of prayer. One is communion-centric prayer. That's where devotional prayer falls. It's the kind of prayer where you're just simply trying to relationship build with God. It's that witness with God intercessory prayer falls in the other category what I would call kingdom centric prayers because in these prayers we're actually standing before God interceding on behalf of people in our life or on behalf of our city our neighbors our country asking him to make his kingdom come and his will done on earth as it is in heaven hey you want to change the world intercessory prayer must become one of your strengths. Want to be the Love the Ville Church and be known for your justice and your evangelism and your compassion, mercy, and resurrection life in this city? Intercessory prayer must become one of our strengths as a church. Now. Most of us thrive when it comes to like our quiet time. That's how you were taught to pray, which is great again, but that's not intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is not just relational building. It's taking those relational chips you have with God, pushing them in, cashing them in and asking God to answer your prayer, to act, to forgive, to change history or to unleash his power. Now, the classic passage here is uh, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. Here we go. Lots of Bible today. So we're just going to be reading long, long... Ch- if you don't like the Bible, you're going to have a difficult time at Northeast. You're going to have a difficult time today. But if you do, it's a good day for you. Um, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4... Paul's talking to like his apprentice, Timothy here. Um, This is what he says to him about prayer. He gives him four types of prayer, actually. He says, "I, I, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. So he says, offer intercession for who? All people, all people. He goes on, he says, specifically pray this way for kings, all who are in authority, so that we can live peaceful, quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity, which sounds so much like the Christian church right now, right? Just peaceful, quiet, dignified. Okay. Nobody laughed at the 9 a.m. either, that's great. Um, (sighs) Verse three, this is good, this is good. He says, and pleases God, our savior, who wants everyone to be saved. And to understand the truth so quick little basic definition here according to paul intercession is something we pray over all people over people in our lives of our neighbors our families our our kids over our governmental leaders anyone with authority in your life the systems and structures around us that guide us paul says in intercession we contend for peace godliness dignity saving grace and the truth to prevail now, a classic example is one in the Old Testament where uh, Abraham intercedes on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. Have you ever read this? you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? It's an interesting story. We're not teaching this one in Sunday school for the kids. I'm just saying, but it all kind of goes down in Genesis 18, basically uh, God decides that in his righteous judgment, he's going to destroy this city. And Abraham uh, has some people that he loves who live there. So uh, he intercedes on behalf of the city. Listen to his intercessory prayer conversation with God here, 1820. It says, uh, Abraham approached God and said, will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? He he speaks pretty directly here, I want you to notice. Little froggy. Uh, He says, suppose you find 50 righteous people living there in the city, God, will you still sweep it away? not spirit for their sakes, surely you wouldn't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Like he's calling God's character into question. He says, why would you be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same? Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Now, have you ever talked to God like that? (laughs) Careful. I'm sure there was reverence here. Okay, he's got a a pretty good relationship with God, Abraham does, if you read his story, but careful. Now, here's what I love about God, though. You know what God does? Abraham's like, if there's 50 people, come on, God. And God's like, okay, there's 50 people, I won't do it. And Abraham's like, oh, it worked. I don't think there's 50 people. What about 40 people, God, if there's 40 people? And God's like, All right, 40, 30, 30, 20. I see your 20 and call you 10. 10, God, if there's 10 righteous people, will you spare the city? And God says, if there's 10, I'll spare. It's this amazing like back and forth moment between Abraham and God. Now, if you know the story, there was not even 10 people in Sodom and Gomorrah that were righteous. And so God's judgment rains down, Lot's wife turns into a pillar. It's a whole story, right? Just just read it on your own. But again, what I I want you to see here is the nature of intercessory prayer. What an amazing story. Fast forward from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You find the Apostle Paul offering one of my favorite pastoral intercessions for the church of Ephesus, Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. What did Paul pray for his churches? Well, here's what we he pray. He says, uh, when I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven on earth. I pray, and I want you to know that as a pastor, I pray this over our church often. So know that this is being prayed over you as I try to follow in Paul's footsteps here. He says, I pray that from God's glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you Though it is too great to understand fully, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Beautiful words. Beautiful. I pray that for you. Now from Old Testament to New Testament to to Jesus, did you know that some of Jesus' dying words with his last breath was an intercession for you and me, for the church? John 17, literally hours before he dies, verse 20. This is what Jesus prays. Jesus says, I am praying not only for these disciples, like the disciples in the upper room with him, but also I'm praying uh, for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That would be us. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. May they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. So Jesus' dying prayer was what? It was for unity among the church. In fact, he invokes it here as an evangelistic strategy. The world will believe my identity and my mission if the church unites. Let it be, God. Let it be, Father. Now, sadly, this prayer remains unanswered in this cultural moment because the church is not united. But I can't help but thank that Jesus' prayer is just waiting to burst through the walls of the dam and wash over our city and our nation if this church would just crack it open with the sledgehammer of unity, right? Wonder what he would do. Okay, now, th- those are only three examples. I could give you more. I'm gonna give you two more here in a little bit, okay? But that's intercession. That's intercessory prayer. And you get it? You kind of get in the vibe of it? Let me give you my definition. Here's my definition. Intercession is the act of shaping history through the power of prayer. And I know that sounds extreme, but I believe that's the sort of power that you have. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you have been called by God, given the opportunity by God, given the authority from God the Father to shape the future? It all starts with actually believing that you do. I'm gonna be honest with you. For the longest time, I wondered why uh, prayer was even really a thing. Uh, why does it matter? I was un- unmotivated to pray, r- really. It wasn't because I doubted God. It wasn't because I didn't enjoy prayer when I prayed. Like I, I actually enjoyed it, to enjoy it to this day. It wasn't because I wasn't seeing prayers answered in my life, I was seeing God move. Uh, the reason why I was unmotivated was because of my theology. I've got just kind of like this rational, nerdy-ish mind. And so things got to work for me up here for me to get excited about them. And I struggled. Like, what's the point of pr- If God is sovereign, he's going to do whatever he wants, then why do we pray? Seems like I should just probably just open the Bible, study the Bible, and just obey. That should, I, should, I should spend more time reading and studying than in prayer if this is God's nature. Now, some people would try to help me and they would say, well, Tyler, you don't pray to change God's will, you pray so he will change your will. You ever heard that one? And it's true, partially. When you pray, God changes your will. He conforms your will to his. It's an incredible thing. But that does not sound like what Abraham believed what he thought he was doing when he duked it out with God over Sodom, does it? He was saying, God, do my will, not thy will. So my best read of scripture is that it teaches that not only does God influence us through prayer, but he's given us the opportunity to influence him back through our prayers. So Jesus tells this parable. It's not gonna be on the screen because I added it this morning. Um, So just just listen, just listen and take it in. Uh, Luke 11, verse 5. Jesus says this, he says, uh, then teaching them more about prayer, Jesus used this story. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight, wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. Uh, You say to him, a friend of mine has just arrived, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit, and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out back to you from his bedroom, knock it off, don't bother me. The door is locked for the night and my family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. For the record, in the ancient Near East, most houses were just one room. Like your bedroom, the kitchen, all in one room together. There was one bed. So like everybody's sleeping. If the the man of the house were to get up and offer three loaves of bread, now everybody's up. Jesus goes on. He goes, I tell you this though. Though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence, your shameless audacity. Verse 11, he says, you fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So, he says, if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now, there is tons to unpack in that passage. We don't have time for it, but this is the sentiment of the Bible. We always want to blame God for unanswered prayer. When are we going to blame ourselves for unasked prayer? Shameless persistence, shameless audacity, he says, and your heavenly father will open his ears and listen. When we pray, God influences us, we also influence God. He listens to his children and he's willing to curb his plans in partnership with you and I. Sky Jathani writes this, says, Blaise Pascal, French philosopher and mathematician, once said, God has instituted prayer so as to confer upon his creatures, that's us, the dignity of being causes. Wow. It's a wonderful thought that we are not merely passive stage props in a pre-written cosmic drama. No, but we are creative partners with God in the writing, directing, design, and action that occurs on the stage of history. For that reason, prayer is much more than asking God for one thing or another it is partnering with him by drawing into deep communion with his spirit and in that intimate union taking up our special vocation as his people in prayer we are invited to join god in directing the course of the world wow do you believe that do you believe it okay now two more bible stories do you like bible stories okay so this is, again It's not your church if the answer is no. So um, there's great TV on Sunday morning, great brunch spots. But if you like Bible, this is your joint. Then you can go to the brunch and TV after. So um, first, uh, Moses. Moses and and the Exodus. You are likely familiar with this story. Even if you're not a Christian, you probably heard the the Exodus story before, right? So uh, during during the Exodus, there's just mind-blowing miracles that happen. First, uh, you have the 10 plagues which include things like blood water, and locusts, and frogs, and darkness, and death angels, and just crazy. And then, then there's the parting of the Red Sea. And they walk, the Israelites walk through on dry land, then the Red Sea closes on the Egyptian army. Then as they're walking through the desert, they're being guided by a cloud by day, and even cooler, a pillar of fire at night. Oh, and also, it's raining frosted flakes when they're hungry. Literally. Now, I would have chosen Captain Crunch, but Frosted Flakes are pretty good. So like this, you can't really complain here. My point is, is that during this time, the Israelites experienced a special concentration of miraculous activity from God himself that was undeniable. But apparently that wasn't enough. Because in Exodus 32, Moses goes up on the mountain to confer with God, get the law, And apparently he stayed up there just a little too long because while he's up there, the people and his brother Aaron get finicky. Uh, Exodus 32, starting in verse one, we're gonna read 14 verses here. So stick with me. It says, when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, he's the priest. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who uh, brought us here from the land of Egypt. So Aaron said, okay, I got an idea. Take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, molded it into the shape of a calf. And when the people saw it, they exclaimed, oh, Israel, these are the gods. These are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were. So he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, "Tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord." The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings, and after this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. Everybody, say "pagan revelry." <laughs> I don't. Know, I'm not. I, you can imagine. You can imagine what pagan revelry is. All right, just not too long because it's church. Okay. Verse seven. The Lord told Moses, quick, go down the mountain. Your people whom you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. How quickly have they turned away from the way I commanded them to live? Then the Lord said, I've seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them and I'll destroy them. Then I'll make you, Moses, into a great nation. So there's God's plan. Judgment. That's plan A, but Moses intercedes. Verse 11, Moses tried to pacify the Lord, his God. Oh Lord, he said, why are you so angry with your own people whom you brought from the land of Egypt with such great power and such a strong hand? Why let the Egyptians say, their God rescued them with the evil intention of slaughtering them in the mountains and wiping them from the face of the earth. Turn away from your fierce anger. Change your mind about this terrible disaster you have threatened against your people. Remember, remember the promises you made to your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You bound yourself with an oath to them saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven and I will give them all of this land that I have promised to your descendants and they will possess it forever. Now look, quick pause here. If Moses thought that God didn't care about what he had to say, he would have never prayed this prayer right? Change your mind, God, he says. But he believed his prayers mattered. God gave him a plan A. He interceded for a plan B. And here's what God did, Exodus 32, 14. So the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened to bring on his people. Now, I cannot tell you how often, how many times I've heard people or pastors or scholars try to explain this verse away. Well, I know what the Bible says, but this didn't really actually change his mind because we know God's omniscient and sovereign and you know, whatever, right? But we, look, we, ha- we have to deal with what the text actually says here. And the text actually says that God changed his mind. We have to reckon was what the Bible tells us. Moses believed he could change God's mind, he did. God was open to the prayers of his faithful servant. And because of that, Moses was able to shift the trajectory of history. Do you believe you can? Another story, story two, King Hezekiah. you familiar with Hezekiah? Okay, so uh, King Hezekiah was the king, the king of the southern kingdom. Um, about the turn of the 7th century. And not only did Hezekiah actually add 15 years to his life when God already told him, you're going to die of this illness through intercessory prayer, but he also prayed the southern kingdom's victory over the Assyrians, the world superpower of the time, through intercessory prayer. Amazing story. So about the turn of the 7th century BC, the Assyrians were the world's superpower. They were going around kicking everybody's rear ends across. I mean, like they had an overwhelmingly large army uh, and they brutally conquered lands, including the Northern Kingdom of Israel, the 10 Northern Tribes. The year was approximately 722 and uh, Assyria swept in, sacked the 10 Northern Tribes. And the Northern Kingdom didn't stand a chance anyways. Not only was Assyria's army large, Uh, But they were the leaders of the arms race during the Iron Age. So they had advanced weaponry. They had military technology that was unseen of, unheard of at that time. That could pull city walls down. They had a special ops group in their military uh, unit that would go out to cities and scout them out beforehand to try to figure out the, the structural weaknesses and the integrity of the city. And then come and report back. So needless to say, they squashed the northern kingdom. Now, when Assyria conquered you, what they did to your land was especially dehumanizing. So what they would do is they would mix up you, your people, with all the other peoples that they had conquered. Immediately after the, northern, uh, the north was conquered, they deported 30,000 Jews around the world. And they brought a bunch of people from their conquered lands around the world to the northern kingdom. It'd basically be like folks take, if somebody conquered North America, mixing up like Spanish-speaking Mexicans, English-speaking you know, Americans, French-speaking Canadians, just kind of mixing everybody up together. Now, why would they do such a thing? Well, the goal was to erase you. That was, the goal. they wanted to erase your unique cultural identity, erase your unique ethnic identity, erase your unique religious identity, and make you a Syrian. So just throw a bunch of confused to, uh, people together Stand back, they thought, and the syncretism and intermarriage will run its course. And by the way, that's exactly what happened to the Northern Kingdom. They married into other tribes and other peoples, and this is where the Samaritan people came from. You know the Samaritans from the, you know, the New Testament stories? The Samaritans, by the time of Jesus, were called by the Jews uh, you know, the bastard people, half-breeds, brutal prejudice between them and the Jews. This is where that, that all began. Now, uh, it was not long after the north met its demise that Assyria then turned its eyes on the south, the two southern tribes where King Hezekiah ruled, specifically Jerusalem. And if Sennacherib and Assyria took Jerusalem, this would be the end. This would be the end of the people of God. This would be the end of the messianic line as we know it. It would be eliminated. Sennacherib even sent King Hezekiah uh, a message smack talking him. He says, You're next. Don't count on your gods. All the other nations said their gods would save them, and look at how far it got them. Now, there is no reason why that should not have been true. The Syrians should have squashed the army of Jerusalem, and yet it is a historical fact, testified by both biblical and extra biblical evidence that within a few days of surrounding Jerusalem, the Assyrians went home defeated. Why? How? What happened? Intercessory prayer. 2 Kings 19, verse 14, it says, after Hezekiah received the letter from the Assyrian emperor, and he read it, He went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed this prayer before the Lord. Bend down, O Lord, and listen. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to Sennacherib's words of defiance against the living God. It's true, it's true that the kings of Assyria have destroyed all these nations and they have thrown the gods of these nations into the fire and burnt them. But of course the Assyrians could destroy them. They weren't real gods anyways, only idols of wood and stone shaped by human hands. Now, O Lord, our God, rescue us from his power. Then all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone, O Lord, our God. What a prayer. Verse 20, it says, Then Isaiah, the prophet, sent this message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. His armies will not enter Jerusalem. They will not even shoot an arrow at it. They will not march outside its gates with their shields nor build banks of earth against its walls. The king will return to his own country by the same road on which he came. He will not enter this city, says the Lord, for my honor and for the sake of my servant David, I will defend this city and protect it. And that night, verse 35, the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And when the surviving Assyrians woke up the next morning, they went home. Found corpses everywhere. They broke camp, returned to their own land. Now, fun fact for you, Herodotus, who's a Greek historian, I think about the 6th century, he's a couple generations removed from this. He wrote about this account in his histories. Book 2, section 141, for those of you who are interested. And in his histories... He didn't believe in the the God of the Hebrews, the God of Israel. So he explains Assyria's, you know, David versus Goliath defeat in this way. He says, you know what happened? At night, a bunch of mice came into the Assyrian camps and chewed up all the bowstrings of the Assyrian army. So they left the next day. That's his explanation. A plague of mice who wanted to eat bowstrings. Look, I'm not sure who's right. Maybe the Greeks were right with the army of mice as the explanation. Maybe, you know, the Hebrews were right saying it was 185,000 angels. Maybe it was angel mice. I'm not sure. We just know, we just know that something incredible happened that should not have happened. So I could give you more stories. We are simply out of time and I wanna spend some time praying here in a second. So let's leave it at this, y'all. When you study the Bible, nobody, and I mean nobody, is saying that prayer doesn't change things. Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David, Paul, none of these uh, leaders believed that the future was set in stone And that we're destined to go through some sort of secret plan God has already mapped out that he will not deviate from. No, people pray in the scriptures like it mattered. Let's pray today like it matters. Whatever it means for God to be sovereign, there's space in his sovereignty for the power and authority of your prayer life. Do you believe it? I'm reminded of what Jesus' brother James said, reflecting on one of the stories of Elijah's prayers. James 5, 17 through 18. It says, Elijah was as human as we are. Just like you, he says. He's a human being. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. And then when he prayed again, the sky sent the rain. Wow. Walter Wink theologian wrote this. He says, history belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. Even a small number of people firmly committed to the new inevitability on which they have fixed their imaginations can decisively affect the shape the future takes. These shapers of the futures are the intercessors who call out of the future the longed for new present. And commenting on Wink, Richard Viota's pastor from Queens said this. He says, the world doesn't operate that way. The world says history belongs to the movers and shakers. History belongs to those in power or those supremely wealthy or to those who have influence. But God sees things differently. God uh, God sees that those that are shaping the course of human history are those who call upon him in the name of the Lord. History belongs to the monk in the monastery who's praying seven times a day, a man who you will never hear about. History belongs to the 80-year-old grandmother who's on her rocking chair right now praying for her family, praying for the sake of the world. History belongs to the person who will get up a little early and go to sleep a little later to call upon the name of the Lord and hold the realities of the world before the living God. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. And look, if that's true, Northeast, then that means that history belongs to you and to me. If we so choose. Now, I know this sounds extreme, but these are extreme times we're living in, eh? A global pandemic? Like racialized violence and protests and rioting in our city? our city you know that we broke our homicide record last year in less than 11 months our nation feels like it's on the brink of civil war unpeaceful transfer of power roe v wade polarization politicization partisanship and that's just the last two years what about all of the other sufferings and hardships and sins of life that we were facing before it a missing father epidemic, radical sexual confusion, the complete and utter disintegration of the family unit, racism, xenophobia, cancer, job losses, marriage issues, mental health, opioid addiction, moral decay. These are extreme times, and I can't help but think that the church is leaving some of its power and authority to do something about it on the table if we don't pray. We haven't embraced our role as intercessors. We haven't tapped into our God-given potential. So look, no homework today. What I wanna do for the rest of our time is I want to pray together. I'm gonna invite Lindsay uh, up on stage and she is going to sing a prayer of intercession. And we're we're gonna sing it twice because there are two things I think we need to intercede for. First, I want you to take this first, just first moment of prayer. I want you to take a deep breath at the beginning and I want you to bring into mind a person that you need to intercede for or maybe an issue in our city or an issue in our nation that's been breaking your heart lately. And I want you to hold it in your mind. I want you to look at the word, listen to the words of this song and I want you to agree with it in spirit. And together as a choir of intercession, let's come before the Lord and pray. Can we do that? Take a moment, decide who you might want to intercede for and Lindsay is going to lead us in prayer.